Well, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. If you are visiting with us, then uh, allow me to introduce myself. I am uh, Pastor Roger, and uh, we are just honored that you're with us today, uh, that you chose to come and worship with us. And so uh, we're going to continue in our Ephesians series uh, entitled Reaching Higher. I want you to think about that title, Reaching Higher. That means that what God wants for us is that our lives wouldn't be average. But when I say not average, I don't mean in worldly terms. He wants our lives to be marked by a higher calling, a higher purpose, a higher power, and a higher passion for life. What we serve should not look like the world. How we serve should not look like the world. There are changes that when we come to know Jesus Christ that are so radical, and I use that word on purpose, they are so radical that there should be no going back. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? There should be no, we shouldn't be able to go back and look like the world again. It should bother us so deeply that it doesn't fit in the new paradigm of life that God has given us. That our lives should just be marked by things that are, that are of a higher calling and a higher pursuit that reflect the glory and the grace and the power of God. And I'm reminded of a, a story in the Gospels of a man who was born blind and Jesus heals him. Now he was born blind. So I want you to imagine, say, what was his life like as a blind man in first century Palestine? He couldn't work. He would be rejected by the religious authorities because they saw somebody as being born with a deformity or some kind of a handicap as God's judgment on them as a person. So the, the, the prevailing spiritual teaching of the day would have been God didn't like you from birth. Now that's rough, right? So not only can you, there's really no way for you to earn a living and also, God doesn't like you, so now the religious folk are going to be like, yeah, God doesn't like you, why should I? So what are you dependent on? You're dependent on the kindness of people to just allow you to live by giving you food. You had to beg for everything for your entire life. You were dependent on the kindness of others in a culture that would already devalue you. And then Jesus heals the man. And it says, you know, he's amazing. I mean, he's, he rejoices, he's, he's leaping, he's, he's dancing. I mean, it's like, I can see, and you can imagine that. I mean, it, you know, he, he was born blind, so now a miracle has happened. Now, I don't want to get into the rest of the story, but what do you think his life looked like after that? Did he continue to beg? Did his sense of identity change? Did his life look anything like it did while he was blind, do you think, after he'd been healed? No, everything had to change, right? And when I say everything, I mean everything. He, he now had to go learn a trade. He had to learn how to work. He, he had to learn how to live in a way that was now so radically different than what he had experienced. And, and you know what? I imagine... 
He learned all of it with absolute joy in his heart. How many times had he maybe heard about maybe craftsmen or, or musicians or these people, you know, working and doing their thing, and, and he's blind from birth, and he just would imagine, his, man, I wish I could work with my hands. I wish I could be self-sufficient and take care of myself. I just, and then when he got the opportunity, do you think he was like, you know what, that's hard. It's a lot easier begging in the temple. I think I'll go back there and just act like I did before. No, he had joy in his heart at being able to live a new life. Why? Because he no longer lived in darkness. Now, for him, it was a literal darkness. He no longer lived in darkness. And so the characteristics of darkness no longer fit in his new life. Nothing about how he lived while he was blind would fit in his new life, in his sense of identity. I mean, suddenly he, you know, you read in the story that the Pharisees argued with him over and over, like, you're born blind, we know. And he's like, hey, I got healed. Maybe God doesn't hate me. I got healed. You don't get to say this to me anymore. See, his, his entire idea of self-identity, his self-worth, everything changed in a moment. And of course, we all realize that that man is a metaphor for everybody who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord. Because we were all once in darkness. And the things of darkness dominated our minds dominated our lives. We didn't even know it was darkness because we just thought it was normal because we were born into it. But when we come to know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. We are literally born again, made again in his image. The Holy Spirit enlightens us, empowers us, opens our mind to the truth. And so there should be a life of no more And that's what we're going to talk about this week. We're just covering three verses this week because it is such a radical, such an intense command from Paul. Because here's where he turns the corner. He has told us everything we have in Christ. He has told us the gifts we have in order to do the work of ministry, to be equipped for the work of ministry, that we have these gifts, we have the church, we have the word, we have the spirit, we have the eternal blessings that he has given us, we have salvation, we have the seal of God, the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need. God has done miraculous things, and if you don't think he's done miraculous things for you, get back in the word. Because if you are born again, the greatest miracle that ever occurred in Scripture has happened in you. Okay, the, the greatest miracle. You can look back on Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Salvation, greater miracle. The Mo- Moses parting the Red Sea, born again, greater miracle. All of that is just to show, lead up, and prove to us that what God is doing with us matters. And the greatest miracle of all time is a person being remade, forgiven of their sin, and remade in the image of Christ to live eternally. 
That is the greatest miracle ever. But if we have experienced that, just like that blind man, shouldn't our new lives reflect something totally different? Now, many times we don't understand just how different, and so Paul wants to explain that to us. And he gives what I believe is one of the starkest, one of the most intense descriptions of what the darkness is that lives in a person who is not in Christ in these three verses. If you really pay attention, these verses should almost be frightening, especially if you're not in Christ, because he is describing the state of a lost person, okay? So listen with me in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, and he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, it's easy for us to read that and be like, yeah, that's those people, right? I mean, it is. Especially if you're saved, you're like, oh, yeah, that's those people. That's those evil people out there that, you know, you see on the news. What's that got to do with me? No, what Paul is doing right here is describing everybody outside of Christ. This is what the human life has descended into because of sin. And so he tells us, you can't walk like this anymore. You cannot live like this anymore. And if he has to tell us to do it, he has to tell us not to do it, what does that mean? That means it's a possibility that we can. Now that should scare us. Because as we read this, we should have something inside us saying, oh no, I don't want to live like that. And yet he has to say, and he says, I I tell you this, I, I I say, and he says, I testify in the Lord. He's saying, this is from God. This is important. He double stresses it, that this is a command that we are no longer to walk like this. Which means we've got to put forth some effort not to. There is a choice that we have to make. And the first thing that we have to look at in this, that I, I think Paul's really laying out, is we have to ask the question, what is my foundation? Because the foundation leads to everything, right? If you don't have a good foundation, what happens to the structure? Anybody in here have foundation troubles with your house? What happens? It all starts coming apart. Everything. It just all starts to fall. And Jesus himself tells us this in Matthew 7. He says, those who hear my words and put them into practice are like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the wind comes, the rain comes, the waves come, and they beat up against it, but it will stand. And the fool builds his house on something else, not on his word, built on the sand. The wind comes, the waves come. What happened? The building comes crashing down. The foundation washes out from under it. And so we have to ask, what is my foundation? Because one of the truest Proverbs in the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 14, 12. 
There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. How many of you in here have been taught to look within? Trust your, just follow your heart. Isn't that a popular thing? Just follow your heart. You do you. You follow your heart and, and you'll never go wrong. Um, Solomon followed his heart. And 300 wives later, and 700 concubines, and insanity, he was able to say, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, leads to death. We can't trust ourselves. Okay? You, you can't. Do not trust yourself. We trust the wisdom of God has been revealed in Scripture. We, re, we, we trust the revealed truth of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, we have to look at what is my foundation. We have to ask ourselves over and over what the foundation and the source of our values, our motives, and our actions are. Because our own feelings on the matter aren't enough. How many of you have ever had your feelings lie to you? How many of you have ever been mad at nothing? And you don't even know why. You're just like, I'm mad. I'm mad today. I don't know why. But you are like, everybody just clear out because I'm, I'm angry. And you don't even know why. See, that's what our feelings do. They will get us spun up and direct us away from the truth and away from people and away from God over and over and over. And so Paul shows us in stark reality just how dark the mind is apart from Christ. And so we either find renewal with Christ or we follow the course of this world and rely on thinking that is driven by darkness. It is one or the other. There is no middle ground here. We are either making decisions based on truth or a lie, on light or on dark. There, there's no gray here, okay? There, there really isn't. There is no gray. And so... When we start to ask ourselves, what is my foundation, we'll get into scriptures like Romans 8, 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Notice the stark reality, the, the, the stark contrast. There's an absolute contrast right there. He didn't say, hey, you can kind of do one or the other. What does he say? You either set your mind on the flesh and you're going to get death. Or you set your mind on the spirit, and what do you get? Life and peace. It's a twofer. You get life and peace from the spirit. All you get is death from the flesh. And so in this section of Ephesians, Paul shows us just how dark the mind set on the flesh really is. Because it all starts with the mind. And Paul tells us plainly. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Notice he didn't just say, hey, lost people, you know, in darkness you'll, you'll struggle. There's a struggle, but you can overcome it. What did he say? He says it's futile. It's futile. Any Star Trek fans in here? Out yourselves, Trekkie. Resistance is futile. Yes. What does that mean? It means it's useless. Useless. Absolutely useless. Worthless. 
And he says, do not walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You see, one of the things that has happened, and this has happened over centuries, okay, is what we is called the humanistic belief. And humanism has crept its way into the church. And you know what humanism teaches? Humanism teaches, and like I said, this goes back hundreds of years, okay? So it's just kind of crept, it's kind of built, it's there. Humanism teaches that man's fall was a moral fall, but not an intellectual fall, and that the mind is capable of ascertaining truth on its own. And that belief is everywhere. Okay, that belief is all over. It's why we in, in our culture value, and I'm not anti-education, but it's why we value education as the answer to everything. Because, hey, if we just give them the right information, then they'll make the right choice, right? How many of your children have done that? How many of you have done that? How many times have you had the right information and made the wrong choice? We do it all the time. Did Adam and Eve have the right information? Yeah, they did. Absolutely. What did he say? He said, you eat that, you will die. You're free to eat from every other tree in the garden, which included the tree of life, which there was an invitation to life and peace. But he said, you eat from this one, you're going to die. Make a choice. Guess what? They had all the information they needed, and they chose wrong. And that was before the fall. You see, just having information is not enough. And humanism would have us believe that our minds are still capable of wonderful and glorious things. What does Paul say the mind is? Apart from Christ, it's futile. It's useless. Okay, it is an organ that sits on top of your body that will constantly make the wrong decision. It will. It will rebel against God and make the wrong decision every time when left to itself. And so, let's talk about this. Verse 17 and 18, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now he's saying, you used to walk like this. Don't do it anymore. And then he tells us the foundation that they draw from. And he says, one, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. So let's talk about the futility of their minds. It equals emptiness, purposelessness, vanity, folly, uselessness. The mind apart from Christ is incapable of knowing and walking in truth. Incapable. So whereas humanism teaches, hey, the mind is able to get to truth on its own. You just got to educate it. You just got to train it. Christian theism, which is what we believe, says apart from Christ, you can do nothing. That means you can't even think the right thought on your own. Can't get there. It means even, as the scripture says, all our righteousness is like filthy rags with God, okay? It's saying that even when you try to do good, it's going to go bad. And it is our fault. It's not that we made a mistake. It's not we just didn't understand it well enough. He's saying even when we try to do right, we're going to do it for the wrong reason. And so what we would even consider good and righteous and holy compared to actual righteousness and holiness, it's a failure. A complete and total failure. And so, we have to grab hold of this, and it's hard in our culture, okay? Education does not equal character and heart change. And we've had such a humanistic approach to discipleship. 
Now, look, there is, and and y'all have heard me say that before, we have to start with education. If you're completely unaware of what's in this book, it's hard to take what it says to the next level and apply it to your heart. So, yes, we have to have education. But how many people can quote tons of Bible verses and yet they don't know Jesus? They don't know God. The Pharisees could literally quote chapter and verse the entire Old Testament. The Pharisees used to play a game in Jesus' day where they would sit in a circle and they would just start quoting an Old Testament book. And they would stop and the next person would just pick up right there and quote and go. And then they would stop. The next person would pick up and they would see if they could get through entire books without one mistake. And they didn't recognize the Son of God when he stood right in front of them. Bible knowledge does not equal heart change. Faith in Jesus equals heart change. Salvation equals heart change. And so the unbelieving world believes knowledge is power and believes in the mind's capacity to know truth. Humanism and Christian theism are opposed to each other. One is a worldview of faith dependent on Christ for all things, and one is a faith that says, I'm capable within myself. And so long as we believe I'm capable within myself, we will never fully bend the knee to Jesus Christ in the gospel. And thus, we'll walk in darkness. We will walk in darkness. We will not have hope. We will not have joy. We will not have the fruit of the Spirit. We will turn legalistic. Because we'll have all this knowledge that is producing nothing. And what happens is the Bible tells us knowledge puffs up. So we'll become arrogant in that knowledge. Isn't that a great bonus? We'll become arrogant in that knowledge as though we've accomplished something. And we haven't. Because we have not yet walked by faith. And so we cannot truly believe both at the same time because they lead in different directions. Humanism starts with the mind and its ability to know truth. Christian theism starts with Christ as the truth and our need for him. That's what Paul means when he says, don't walk in the futility of your mind. Don't trust your own mind. Trust the word of God. Trust the spirit of God. Trust the gospel. Look to Christ in all things. Because it gets better. When the mind is futile, our understanding of reality itself will be darkened. And what does he say? He says they are darkened in their understanding. Their comprehension of life itself is darkened. Now, how many of you in your own house that you know quite well ever try to navigate in the dark? You don't know it as well as you think you do, do you? You run into a wall, or you're trying to find something on a countertop, and you you have an idea where it is, and, you know, you're up there just, just, I mean, you're knocking stuff over. And then finally, you're like, you know what, light. And you turn on the light, and it's like everything gets clear. That's exactly what a lost mind is like, stumbling around. the, the, The futile mind's attempt to grasp reality is literally grasping in the dark for whatever it can find. And so whatever it can grab hold of, it will grab hold of and say, I I found something. They didn't find what they needed. And here's the crazy thing is that they will 
and this happens. All you got to do is pay attention and look at our world. They'll define their entire reality by that one thing. Something grasped in darkness, and they'll be like, okay, this is it. This is my reality because I was able to find something. And you know what that something is? It's death. It's something that's killing them. But they will completely, we will completely define our reality by it. And so the sinful mind cannot understand life correctly. The lens through which life is interpreted skews unbelievers away from the truth. How life is perceived will be wrong. That's why Jesus would always say, you've heard it said, look, I'm going to tell you the very, you know, truly, truly, I tell you. He's telling people this is the rock solid truth when he would teach. This is a foundation you can draw from. But if we don't hear it, we'll draw from something else. And when life itself is misunderstood, because what is the purpose of life? Anybody figured that out? You know what the purpose of life is? I'm going to give it to you. To know God and glorify Him. It's that simple. We were created to be in relationship with God and to glorify Him with the life that we live. God gives His people all kinds of choices. God doesn't have this one step at a time path that that everybody, you better step here or step here and you've missed it or you've missed your life purpose. He says, no. In Scripture, he says, hey, hey, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all to the glory of him. It's your choice. Just make sure you are walking with God and that you're glorifying him in what you do. Now, glorifying him sure limits, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff taken off the table suddenly. You can't glorify him and do certain things at the same time. And so that is the purpose of life. But if that purpose of life is not understood, which is the highest calling there is, that's the great thing. The highest calling of humanity is to glorify God, to know him and glorify him. That's it. That is our highest calling. If we don't do that, what are we doing? We're coming in under that. We are existing on a plane beneath what God intended. And if we exist on a plane beneath what God intended, that means our very identity is going to suffer. We will believe things about ourselves that are not true. We will believe things about life that are not true. We will believe things about other people that are not true. That they are beneath them, literally beneath us. And we'll live there. It will define reality by it. And so we will have a darkened understanding of life. That's what the feudal mind does. It's useless in its attempts to define reality, and when it does define reality, it gets it completely wrong. And so what happens then? Well, we either follow the truth and delight in life, or we're drawing from darkness, which leads to more darkness, because darkness begets darkness. Darkness begets darkness. See, listen again to what he says now happens when we follow a feudal mind and have a darkened, when our foundation is wrong, and we have a feudal mind and a darkened understanding of reality, Here's what happens. He says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is what you'll get out of life. And it begins with being alienated from the life of God. Now, don't limit this. When he says alienated from the life of God, don't think you're just not doing good things. If God is light and life, okay, if God is light and life and all that is good, we we read in James that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. So, So if God wants to give us life and we're alienated from that life that he is giving, what do we have? Death. See, it's not just that, that, that we don't know God. It's that we're completely separated from every good thing he wants to give. We don't even understand the good things that he wants to give. We don't know it. We don't see it as good. Can you see why Paul is so emphatic here? And he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. You can't live like this anymore. Don't do it. Because the Ephesians were in the city of Ephesus. Where darkness, it was one of the darkest cities in the Roman Empire. They had the temple to, to the goddess Artemis there. And you know who Artemis was? Artemis was this transgendered God figure, male and female, fertility goddess thing. And I mean that. You see statues of it and it's an it. And guess what? There were also temples to Roman emperors and to other gods and the temple to Zeus. And all of their defining reality, there was darkness everywhere. Nobody had any sense of reality there. And now you have this small church in Ephesus starting to form. And people are being set free. And it's taken root. And when I say it's taking root, I mean it is taking root in Ephesus to the point people are dropping off the map and no longer worshiping Artemis. To the point where Roman culture is starting to be affected in that city because they, they thought they were strange. Because, hey, guess what? Roman marriages, you know, they, they shared wives and all kinds of things. And the Christians like, no, we're not about that. We're not going to do that. And, and the Roman pro- proconsuls in the area are like, these people are weird. They're really good folks. They're, they're friendly, but they don't share their wives. We, we think they're weird. You see, everything started to change. And then it started affecting the local economy. And you read in the book of Acts, what happens? There's a riot that starts to happen. Because, hey, you start hitting people in the pocketbook, they get mad. And that's what, that's what the worship of Jesus was starting to do. And so you had seriously competing cultures in the city of Ephesus now. You had the church that was growing in light and life and real love and, and, and Christian brotherhood and sisterhood were starting to form. And you had this dark, culture of just evil and they started to go head to head and Paul sees what's going on and he tells them you have to make sure you got to double down and make sure you're not walking like they are don't get sucked back into the culture that you live in now did he tell them to leave that culture and go form a commune and separate themselves no what did he say he says don't just don't walk like they do be light be light in the world. And, and so he says they're, they're alienated from this. But here's the, the thing. Is this alienation is something they do themselves. 
the, the Greek language right here just kind of points this, that they've alienated themselves from it. It's not that God is like, hey, I don't like you. You don't get my blessings. It's that they're saying, we don't like you, God. We don't want your blessings. We don't want you in our lives. We don't want the truth. You see, when it says they're alienated, they're doing this to themselves. It's not God pushing them out. It's them removing themselves from the light. And so, being alienated from the life of God means literally not being grounded in reality. It is chasing a lie that can never exist and thinking life is something that it is not. We see it in our culture now. And I know it, you know, in America right now, we're like, whoa, we've never seen anything like this. And you know what? In America, we haven't. In history, oh, this is nothing new. Okay? Nothing new. And if you think it can't get worse, <laughs> the darkness that the Roman Empire and these pagan religions delve to, it's mind-blowing. I mean, they went to absolute, let's just see how deep we can dig this pit and get into it. And that's why Paul says, you just can't do that. You cannot compromise with darkness. You cannot walk as the other Gentiles do. And he says, because when this happens, we're alienated from the life of God, we become ignorant of what life even is. You see, it's just this continuous downward, downward, downward slide. And people say, oh, well, the slippery slope argument, you know, you're just being a little, isn't that a little extreme? I'm like, no, it's not. Because darkness knows no limit. Evil knows no limit. And whatever we're willing to accept Satan will push us, and our own sinful nature will push us to go two steps further every time. And once we accept it, guess what? Hey, let's just take it a little farther. Let's just take it a little farther. Let's just keep going. And so he says it's because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance of the law is not defense for breaking the law, right? Anybody ever get a speeding ticket, and you're like, well, I didn't know that was the speed limit. Did that ever work? No, what do they say? They say, well, it is. Sign here, please. You were breaking it. And that's exactly what God is going to do on Judgment Day. They're going to say, well, I didn't know. And he's like, I don't care. I'm holy and I'm righteous and I have revealed it to you. And you alienated yourself from it and refused to believe it. So this is on you. I sent my son I sent the, the prophets and, and evangelists and pastors and teachers and apostles. I sent my word. I sent my spirit. You had my church. You had everything that you needed. And you rejected it. I offered mercy and you rejected it. So now you get wrath. And it is stored up fully. You see, the Gentile world has unknowingly rebelled against God's ways and separated themselves from it. But this ignorance is what makes them culpable before God. It, it is. He says it's because of the ignorance. They don't even know they're doing it. They don't even know this is happening, and yet it is. And on that day, God's going to be like, yeah, that's why you're guilty, because you never looked for truth. And at the end of the day, what does this do to the world? Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, when Isaiah says this, 
it's something you can see when you know the truth. You can see when people are inverting it. But if you don't know the truth, you just think it's normal. And that's what he means by the ignorance that's in them. They don't know that bitter is bitter. They believe it's sweet. They think that's what life is all about, the bitterness of death. And they'll embrace it, and they'll hold on to it. And, and, and Christians, even in this time, will do the same thing. And it's not that it's so much intentional. It's that they're ignorant of what good really is. And so they think it's okay. You see, they've misdefined, okay? They've, they've incorrectly defined reality because they've relied on the feudal mind, because they've become darkened in their understanding, and they followed that through in its logical course, and now they say sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet. That's what this sin, that's what sin does to us. And so when I read this Isaiah passage, don't get in mind this whole concept of this person that, that is a villain in a movie that's intentionally just sitting in the back room plotting evil all the time and how we can just destroy the world. Think of a normal person who just simply doesn't understand what life is actually about. It's that simple. This is not some faraway evil that doesn't touch any of us this is who we are apart from Christ. And who we can be even in Christ when we take our eyes off of Christ. When we start relying on our own flesh and our own ability to be righteous, this is who we will become. When we start to take our own feelings as scriptural truth, this is who we will become. See, this that's why Paul, he has to command it. You see, and a command in Scripture is there. Why? Because God knows we're going to do the opposite. And he has to tell us, don't do this or do this. Because I know you're going to do this, so, you know, stop that and do this instead. Commands are there. to They define reality for us. And so the first commandment God ever really gave was defining reality. Hey, there's a choice between life and death. Choose life. I'm giving you life. Choose it. They chose death. And so what happens at the end of this, it says, due to their hardness of heart, it signifies that all sin is willful and culpable, the result of their deliberate refusal of the light available to them in their own thought and conscience in nature itself. An obstinate rejection of the truth of God is the surest path to condemnation. Due to their hardness of heart, they'll just dig in and just keep going. That's what sin does. And in that process, it says they become callous. They become callous. What is a callous? It has become unfeeling and unfazed by activities. Things that once bothered you no longer bother you. Things that should bother you no longer bother you. See, in the book of Jeremiah, it's described as my people have forgotten how to blush. God has a way with words, right? They've forgotten how to blush. They're not even embarrassed by their sin anymore. They just embrace it and run with it. Justify it, live in it, enjoy it, and think that's what life 
is actually about. But here's the, shall we say, unintended consequence of becoming callous. It's more than just a loss of moral conscience, though that is prominent. It also means a loss of feeling in the good things of God. Being alienated from the life of God means becoming numb to truth, love, grace, and beauty. To be numb to love, grace, truth, and beauty. The good things of God, to become numb to it. And if you become numb to the good things of God, that means your life is now numb and without feeling, without purpose. Now, what happens when we become numb? We start to become desperate to feel anything. Anything. And so what happens? He says they have given themselves up to sensuality. Sensuality is a life lived based on feeling. Whatever it is, just to feel. Just to feel. I just want to feel something. But here's the bad news about feelings. What is it? They're fleeting. Feelings come and go. The happiest moment of your life. You're not there anymore, are you? You can be thankful for it. You can look back, oh, that was such an amazing time. But guess what? It ended. You didn't get to live in it forever. Because feelings come and go. And that's what it means by that they've given themselves over to sensuality. And so go all the way back that he says we will grow up into him who is the head to Christ so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro. We got some bookends here. Grow up into Christ and you won't live a life of sensuality because your feelings won't throw you back and forth and lead you by the nose wherever they want to lead you. I'm not saying you'll be stoic. You'll just know the truth and you'll know if those feelings are valid or if they're based on a lie. You will know how to use those feelings to the glory of God. But you see, The fleeting pleasures of the world and of sin become the guiding forces for life in this situation. And because of sin's fleeting nature, greed becomes normal as those trapped within this experience discontent, lack of fulfillment, and hopelessness. Thus, the vices of the world, drugs, alcohol, promiscuity, self-improvement philosophies, love of money, love of power. We we have the, the teenagers doing cutting. All of this stuff. Gender confusion, all of it is an attempt to feel. See, it's not just one subset of people that are like really evil and everybody else. It's everybody. They've given themselves over to sensuality and they're just desperate to feel something because they're separate from God. And that's why he says, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's just a downward slide that just gets worse and worse and worse. The search will be never ending. Now, I know there are people in here that have figured that out. There's something in your life that you, you searched for the ultimate experience or, or whatever. You, you kept going, and, you, and, and eventually God opened your eyes like you're chasing a phantom. Be satisfied with him, not with things or with feelings or with status or with success, because it'll never be enough. It will never be enough. 
That's why Hebrews 11.25 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sensuality will never bring light to darkness. And so, to close this out, what is this all about? Stop walking in darkness. What defines your reality? Is it based on the word of God and on the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him? Or are you allowing the news? Or are you allowing your feelings? Or are you allowing a culture to tell you what's real? And you're chasing something that you can't find. Which one is it? Because listen again to what Paul says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This is a choice. And it's a choice we all have to make daily, over and over, because it is possible to walk like those who are in darkness, but it is not appropriate, nor is it fruitful for you. And we have to ask this question in Romans 6, 20 and 21. He says, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. That is true. You were able to do whatever you wanted. When we're in Christ, there are standards. There are things that God says, don't do that. So no, we are not free in regards to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, whatever your feelings tell you, just follow it. But then he asked the question, he says, you were free in regard to righteousness, verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit do you get from chasing anything outside of Christ? What does he say? He says, for the end of those things is death. The end of those things is death. Now, Paul's going to spend the rest of Ephesians showing us how to keep from walking in darkness. So, no, we're not going to get into all of it. Because that's really what he does for the rest of this book. It's like, here's, here's, you know, be ready here, be ready here, do this. He shows us what life in the light is supposed to be. But it begins by saying, you must make a choice to no longer live as the Gentiles do. And that choice means that we don't trust ourselves anymore because to bring it back, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A better way than the way of Christ has not been revealed. Worship God in spirit and in truth. Learn the truth of God. Serve the kingdom of God. Grow the kingdom of God. And if we do this, we will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we will bear fruit for life and light and goodness, and God will be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for today, and God, I thank you for everyone here. And God, I pray that you help us this week to see where we might be making those choices to walk in darkness, God. God, help us to analyze the fruit we are getting from our choices and see if it is the fruit of the Spirit or if it is the the results of the works of the flesh. God, give us the wisdom and the strength, the courage to turn away from darkness. God, that we would put into practice as as best we can this week, God, knowing there's no condemnation for those in Christ, but God, that we would just long for you, that we would make the choice to walk with you and not in darkness. That our lives truly would reflect that we have been born again, that we have been remade, by your spirit that you would be glorified in our lives 
God, this is our prayer together. Use us to bring others to you, to grow your kingdom. Teach us how to be disciple makers. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.